And that's what narcissistic people do. They shut the lines of communication through manipulations. That wasn't my intention through gaslighting. There's nowhere to go at that point. So the relationship lacks intimacy because there's no sharing. If I was enough, he would love me. If I was enough, he wouldn't cheat on me. If I was enough. This aching feeling of not being enough is common with someone who is in a relationship with a narcissist. But you stay, you keep making excuses, you keep hoping they will change. But no matter what you do, how hard you try, they just get angry, they lash out, they gaslight you, leaving you feeling insecure and not enough. Now on the flip side, these days we seem to be throwing around the word narcissism like it's confetti on New Year's Eve. The second someone displays even a trait, we immediately slap on the narcissistic label and ship them off to Narcissismville with no return address. But today's Woman of Impact, a licensed clinical psychologist, professor of psychology, a distinguished speaker and sought-after expert with appearances on Red Table Talk, CNN, Oprah, Forbes and New York Times to say the least, is here to explain and break down the signs and characteristics we can look out for. The behaviors that can accurately identify a true narcissist so that we can then make the decision to stay or leave with our eyes wide open. So guys, please help me welcome the best-selling author of Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. The narcissism expert herself, Dr. Romani. Hello. Hello, Sidi. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course, I am beyond honored. Um, and I just want to absolutely dive deep into this subject in order for us to be able to identify so that when we either go in a relationship, start a relationship or continue a relationship, we just do it with our eyes wide open. And so where I would like to start is for you to break down the four types of narcissists. Uh, narcissists. I think there's actually more than four. Oh, so you're, yeah. gonna, you're asking for more than you bargained for. Um, so there's sort of the classical grandiose narcissist. And this is often what we think of as sort of the textbook, arrogant, charming, charismatic, confident, you know, sort of really holds the room. And while initially they're incredibly enticing, right, because they're so much larger than life, they can often be quite successful before long, probably in anywhere if you're dating them between four and 12 weeks the blush is going to fall off the rose kind of thing. And it's going to be that they're much more, you'll see that they're getting bored with you, that their superficiality really becomes problematic. They are very contemptuous and dismissive and invalidating, largely because they're so insecure. We go then to the covert narcissist. The covert narcissist is much more vulnerable, sullen, angry at the world. And instead of the big, arrogant entitlement, what you tend to see more of is it's an angry, victimized entitlement. Like the world never gives me what I want. Everybody's against me. Everyone's out to get me. And so there's just sort of like it gets heavy and tiresome. But initially, covert narcissists feel very anxious, like you want mm -hmm. to rescue them. Then there are the malignant narcissists. The malignant narcissists are probably the most dangerous of the narcissists. Not only do they have all the usual qualities of narcissism, the lack of empathy, the entitlement, the grandiosity, all of that, they also are very exploitative. They can be paranoid. They're sadistic. There is a, there is a much more deliberate cruelty. You're more likely to see sort of, if not physical violence, a lot more emotional abuse in these relationships. People feel very menaced and unsettled you might see more coercive control here. 
the fourth kind of narcissist is someone we call a communal narcissist. The communal narcissist cares very much about being viewed by the public as a as a savior or a rescuer. I'm rescuing animals. I'm doing I'm making this important documentary. I'm so important. What I do for the world is so important. And so the world often they get their validation. The communal narcissist has all the usual stuff of narcissism, but they get their validation by being viewed as a do-gooder or a humanitarian or something like that. But they're actually just as interpersonally difficult as any of the other narcissistic people, but people will often miss it because they're so they look so wonderful. There's the neglectful narcissist. These are the narcissistic relationships where you're literally not even seen. It's as though unless they need you, it's almost like my coffee cup. I'm not going to notice my coffee cup unless I need my coffee, but otherwise I'm not going to pay attention to it all day. They tend to view people through that lens of seeing them as conveniences and objects they turn to when they need them. They almost have very little need for people unless it's forwarding their cause. And people in these relationships will literally feel as though they're invisible and completely unseen. Then... There's the self-righteous narcissist. The self-righteous narcissist actually initially seem really moralistic and loyal. Whether that moralism comes through like religion or commitment to like the cause and there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do things, they're incredibly judgmental of other people. Self-righteous narcissists tend to live very well-ordered lives. So they'll mock the way other people eat, the way they dress, if they didn't go to the right school, if they don't live in the right place. And so people in relationships with self-righteous narcissists feel like they're always the 12-year-old child who's being scolded for their bad habits. So there's actually more than just Yeah, four. that was so amazing. I have so many questions. So let's even just take the last, the last one. As you were describing it, I also think of it as like, wow, that's also the behavior of someone that's extremely insecure in themselves. So they're putting someone else down because they're insecure. But would you say that if someone's insecure, they're directly a narcissist? How would you separate the two and go, wow, they're a narcissist or they're just wounded, they're insecure, and so they're doing that to um, protect themselves? Okay, so everybody's insecure. I, have, I've, I can count on one hand the number of human beings I've met on this planet who are just simply secure in themselves. Mm. Because here's the bottom line. Secure people don't lash out at other people, right? Mm. Secure people will say, I know who I am and I know what I stand for. And they know they're not always going to get it right. They're not always trying to overcompensate. They apologize when they wrong, they're wrong. And they never deliberately, you know, again, lash out or attack another person. They have empathy. So, the, you know, I always say it's the difference between the pathologically insecure and the conventionally insecure. Oh. The conventionally insecure is all the rest of us, right? <laughs> right? It's the people who have, we all have wounds. And those wounds are often where we're not graceful or we get really stressed out or we get upset. The difference is, is when you're conventionally insecure and you say the wrong thing, maybe you bite mm -hmm. someone's head off. Maybe you are, um, you respond in a way that's very reactive and unkind. Maybe you don't check in on someone's feelings. A conventionally insecure pe person will detect that rather quickly and mm -hmm. say, I should not have said that. And will attempt to make amends very quickly and say, you know, if I, let's say you and I had an argument and I snapped your head off and I call, I'd call you back and say, Lisa, what I did, I'm so sorry. That was not your responsibility or your problem. I had a tough day, but that wasn't your problem. And I'm so sorry. And you know, again, my excuse is not even meant to be a way to get out of this. I'm telling you about my day, but at the end of the day, I hurt you and I'm sorry. 
That's what a conventionally healthily insecure person would do. A pathologically insecure person, that ends up getting coupled with all this narcissistic stuff, the lack of empathy, the entitlement, the grandiosity, the validation seeking, all of those narcissistic defenses, they protect that insecurity that's not processed. A conventionally insecure person will say, I know what my insecurities are. I'm insecure about my weight or the amount of money I have or my job. I know that about myself. And so I know that when I'm in certain groups of people, I'm not at my best. And a conventionally insecure person might even make decisions accordingly saying, "Uh, I don't know if I want to go to your fancy party tonight. Like that's not my, that's not my crew. I don't feel good. And they'll make their choices accordingly. Right. So that a conventionally insecure person can be reflective. They can be empathic. They can be aware of what their wounds are. They can they can make amends for when they get it wrong. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree that narcissistic people are wounded. I will never disagree with that. In fact, more than a few of them have had traumatic backgrounds. But that doesn't is that's not an excuse for your present behavior. You don't get to say I'm wounded, and that's your get out of jail free card. It doesn't work that way. I understand that you're wounded. Go do the work. Okay, go do the work before you take this out on other people and expect everyone to be your enabler while you lash out at them because of your wounds. That's not acceptable. God, I love how you break that down because there is sometimes such a fine line. It was kind of like what I was saying in my intro where there are really true narcissists and it can be very detrimental to a person if they're in a relationship with them. But then there's also the side of people now just kind of labeling anybody that shows one trait of a narcissist. So what do you think are misconceptions that people currently have on what narcissism is or how to even identify someone that is? So traditionally, a major misconception about narcissism is that it was self-love, that these were people who were in love with themselves and love to look in the mirror. They even look at the myth of narcissus and how he fell in love with his reflection and all of that. Nothing could be farther from the truth. They don't love themselves. In fact, they despise themselves more than the rest of us might actually not like ourselves. Like they really, really, it is a disorder of, of sort of self-hate, of deep insecurity, of dysregulation and everything is about this fear of sort of their their deficits getting found out, of the world seeing that they ain't all that, right? But they're not in touch with any of this. So you can't play to that and say, I get it. You know, you have these vulnerabilities. And they'll say, how dare you tell me I have vulnerabilities? Mm. So you can't connect with them, right? So the misconception is that they love themselves. Well, that let's clear that off the decks. They, they look in the mirror a lot to play into that validation seeking because they're so superficial. Their emotions don't go deep, right? And because if their emotions went deep, that's too much of a threat to them. So they're very superficial and shallow and everything. So looking at themselves a lot in the mirror is part of that shallowness. Now, what people don't understand about narcissism is it is, it's it's a very, very, you know, sort of insecure primal state where the person almost isn't fully formed. They're very emotionally stunted. They don't know how to self-soothe. They don't know how to regulate. They don't know how to be present with other people. They think the rules don't apply to them. And they, they're sort of like a child, <laughs> eyes a little towel around their neck and runs around the house and says, I'm Superman. The reason a child ties a cape around their neck and says, I'm Superman, is because children don't feel powerful. So they have fantasy play in which they're powerful. But as a child goes through healthy development, they start to realize that they don't have to be a grandiose hero. They just need to be themselves. But since many children never get that lesson, that they're loved for just who they are, that is, there's a risk of then developing into the narcissistic adult, where honestly, 
instead of at six tying a towel around their neck at 46 it's like look at my car look at my house the towel around the neck you know it's the same thing it's just doing it's different in adulthood because they need to feel like a superhero and so when we think about narcissism, it's a laundry list of things. It's like I said, lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, superficiality, validation seeking, inability to regulate their moods when they feel frustrated or disappointed. It's arrogance, it's control, it's sensitivity to criticism. Just because someone's not nice to you doesn't make them narcissistic. Right. You need the whole package. And, and at the end of the day, narcissism to me is like a bucket, right? If I need to get water from one side of a place to another, it's certainly much easier to put it in a bucket than putting it in 20 individual glasses. But the the issue then becomes as we oversimplify it, those 20 individual glasses are all the different patterns and symptoms. And maybe a person would say, well, actually, I'm calling this person narcissistic because they don't hear me. And, so, and then I say, break that down. Like, is it that they don't have empathy? Like, what's happening before people use the label because it is very dismissive. And But I have to say, Lisa, for a lot of people who are struggling through these relationships, it takes a long time before they use the word. They're saying, mm. and now I get this. Like, now I have a word for this. I do. Some people do use it very quickly, and they're probably not using it properly. But the people who have been in it for years and say, oh, this is a thing, and now I get it, then that's a different issue. Yeah, it's really been more of, at least from my perspective, a recent thing that's come on my radar of a lot of people um, just white labeling people as narcissists. So I really like the way you broke that down. Um, what about the people that think that it's somebody else? So it's they're doing this, they're a narcissist. They called me too sensitive because I've heard you say if someone calls you you know, says, um, oh, you're just, you're taking it personally. You're just way too sensitive. It's a sign that that could be a potential mm -hmm. narcissist person. But what on the flip side, if you are too sensitive, um, how do you differentiate between I'm insecure and I am being too sensitive and I don't feel good about myself. And so you say something and I take it insultingly or that person really is gaslighting you, putting it on you and it actually isn't your fault. Well, I think that it's, it's, here's the thing in a relationship, everybody has to take accountability. Okay. I really don't ever really like calling anyone too sensitive. I think it's that we take in our experiences. Like even when I say that a narcissistic individual is sensitive to criticism, maybe what I should say, the better put, way to put it is not sensitive to criticism. They're hyper reactive to oh. criticism. So when they, somebody criticizes them, they'll yell at the other person in a really almost terrifying way. That's very different than somebody who's like, oh, why don't they like me and this and that? And then you talk it through with that person. They'll often, they're really, they'll hit the other person with a wave of rage. So it's a hyper reactivity. Maybe that's the better way to put it. I think people take things in the way they take them and that some people will say that it's almost like a it's like a, a calibration, like a little sensitivity meter we have on us. And for some people, based on their, their experiences in life, they may tend to, maybe it's not even sensitivity as much as you're putting it as personalizing, right? Mm -hmm. One of the most important things in the world is say, they said something, and I'm having an experience of it, but it, it's, it's not about me. They said it. And then I have the right to ask them, say, can you tell me more about that? You know, and um, they'll and they might even not think anything of it, but you can ask for clarification. And that's why I'm saying, yeah, obviously in any relationship, in any transaction, if you will, in a, in a, a back and forth between two people, is that you both have responsibility. And the responsibility people have when they talk to each other is respect, 
empathy and clarity. Okay. Mm -hmm. So respect, empathy and clarity every time. So when you're saying something to someone, you want to say, okay, am I saying this in a way that's respectful? Am I actually hearing them? Am I aware of how I may be impacting them? And am I really going, you know, ensuring that I'm being very clear and checking in with them to say, you know, is what I just said, does that make sense? Am I clear? And then the other person has the same responsibility of respect, empathy, and clarity. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, and if you have the sort of basic rules of this. So I think one of the, the, and where this starts getting challenging is, is that a, a real danger is that most people who are in narcissistic relationships blame themselves. They blame themselves for what's happening. That you you open you know you open the show with I'm not enough I'm not enough. Where do you think that comes from? They're blaming themselves for somebody else's behavior. So I'm very 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 careful to never blame someone for saying, well, gosh, you know, this person was, um, you know, they're they're really short in their texts to me. And if I was working with someone, I'd say, okay, they're very short in their texts. Can you um communicate with them and say, you know, I'm and say, I'm struggling a little bit with your text. Mm. They're very blunt. They're very short. Um, you know, and I'm, can you give me some clarity on that? Because I'm sort of experiencing them in an uncomfortable way. If you're that clear and the other person says, what is wrong with you? Mm. Er, red flag. But if you say that to someone, the other person says, you know, I apologize. I'm managing three kids at home. I have a lot going on. So yeah, my texts are short. I can understand how they would feel uncomfortable. So I apologize for that. But I am really busy. Then they've given you context. Now it's on you. They've just told you. They're busy. Okay? They're telling you. They're giving you some back. They're, they're respectfully acknowledging your concern. Mm. Then it's if you're going to then keep complaining to them, oh, you know, they just told you. They've got three kids. And you then you need to move on. Because obviously then this, you need someone who's able to give you something very different. But I think too many people try to draw water out of empty wells. They want people to communicate with them the way they want. This isn't working for you, then leave. Do not try to transform someone into something they can't be. So what ends up happening is years, they, they tried. They're like, this is bothering me. You're too sensitive. I'm struggling with this. What's your problem? You know, when you said that, I never said that. You know, they're going through 20 years of this. This isn't them misinterpreting one mm. thing. This is them having gone to this 10,000 times. And so at that point, I can say, they're not going to change. What are you going to do? Well, I want them to change. I said, that option's not on the table. They're not going to change. What are you going to do? And so when I say, listen, you can stay. That, that's, that's not my call to make for you. That's your call to make mm. for you. You need to put on your big, big person pants and recognize like this is your call. The thing I'm not going to ever support you is like, I'll stay if. There's no if. This is it. This is who this person is. You stay and this is how it is. Oh, that was so strong. Oh, my God. Just that one word makes all the difference. Um, mm -hmm. That's so strong. Um, I've heard you give examples, which I always find very powerful because it really is like almost acknowledgement like, oh, okay, Dr. Romani said that if they say this, it's a red flag. So I love being able to identify very specific red flags. And you have said, which I would love to talk about, a quote of yours, you said, benefit of the doubt is code for enabling. Um, mm -hmm. So is that you should never give anyone the benefit of doubt? Can you explain that and break that down for me? I, I Listen, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the rule of threes. You know, you, you can try something three times. And if, if after the third time, it, it's, it is, you, know, you keep giving someone a lot of the benefit of the doubt, that's on you. 
that's on you at that point to say, okay, you know, but if you're at your 55th benefit of the doubt, you're now an enabler. Right. Right. But, you know, yes, one time a person may be late. Okay. And they may even tell you, they may even text you and say, my, my, whatever, my work meeting went long. I'm going to be 30 minutes late. So they communicate clearly, or maybe they don't. And you might say to them, Hey, you know what, when you're going to be this late, because my time is really challenged. It would actually be helpful for me to know. I might've actually gone back to my car, mm-hmm. run an errand. Then they show up 30 minutes late again. And then like, ah, oh, they did tell me they live on the other side of town. So you could say, listen, it seems like being late's an issue. So maybe what we should do, since you have all this traffic, let's always budget this mm-hmm. one hour time. And so maybe we can shift the time. You, They show up late again. At that point, you're saying, this person's always late. There's no more benefit of the doubt. At that point, you have the conversation with yourself and say, I'm either going to go and accept the lateness And if the lateness doesn't work for me, this isn't going to work. So then you're having, that's what I'm saying is that the benefit of the doubt, maybe once, Mm. maybe then there has to be communication on what is happening here. The person may say, I'm never going to be on time. I'm telling you that right now. That's I'm, that's not my groove. So if we could set things up that I show up when I show up and you might say, no, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't respect my time. That's fine. Game over. I think the problem is people want it the way they want it. Mm. They're like, well, I don't. I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I want them to be on time. I'm like, that's not an option. They're not going to be on time. And I think everyone almost becomes a child. They want what they want. Wanting what you want is fine. Wanting it from something that, that can't give it. Now we're back to the drawing the water from the empty well. And I think it really then, it's the responsibility we have to hold for ourselves. And this is where the ancient issues people have of feeling they don't deserve more. So from childhood, people might have gotten the lesson that you don't matter Um, we don't value you. You're not important. So when that trails us into adulthood, we think like we don't deserve someone to show up on time or who am I to question somebody on whether they're late, but this resentment is growing up in us, in, in us. It's okay to ask for what you want. And then you have to accept that you may not get it from this particular. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless 
and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you anymore. And that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doctor that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc dot com slash lisa and download the zocdoc app for absolutely free then find and book a top rated doctor today that's zocdoc z-o-c-d-o-c dot com slash lisa zocdoc dot com slash lisa as an entrepreneur one of the biggest challenges you will face is a negative voice in your head you know who i'm talking about that maybe not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it, especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Oh my God, that's so true. And like, I, that's like one message that I remind myself every single day. It's communicate, but just because you're communicating doesn't then mean that you actually nope. get it. But there is nope. some form of, well, if I've said it, then it means that you have to acquiesce. And like that's, no. it just doesn't happen like that. Not. Yeah. No. And especially with someone narcissistic, because they're not listening. <laughs> so that you're saying, how do you identify these red flags? Once you've communicated about something three times, mm. okay, and it has been dishonored, devalued not listened to or invalidated that's it you're done and if after you're staying at the table after that it's then time to recognize what are this is why i'm saying education about narcissism is so important mm. because for many people they don't get it so now a person's out there saying three times i gave someone the benefit of the doubt 
three times this we had the same issue. Now I know there's there's no there there. And but again, it's then it's that work of devaluation and un- understanding that about yourself that you might say, I don't deserve better. That's your narrative. Mm. That's you needing to go to therapy. That's you figuring it out. Because if the being you deserve someone to be on time, if that is what you value, you deserve that. If you're staying in it because you think you don't deserve better, then if you've now you're in a cycle. Because especially someone narcissistic is never going to change that. And so that's why I'm saying that doing the deep dive on yourself becomes really, really important. And the fantasy always has been for the child when a person's a child my parent is going to end up stepping up and being a good person when the parent never turns around. And in adulthood, we play that fantasy out in our adult relationships. I want them to turn around and it doesn't happen. And so it's really about giving people the knowledge about what this is. So once they're in it, they can say, "Mm, this isn't working. Because with a narcissistic person, the earlier you leave, the easier it is to extract, right? If it's after just a few dates or a few times, then you're sort of like nobody has that much skin in the game. The problem is early in the game, the narcissist doesn't like to lose. So they will try to suck you back. They'll try to hoover you back. And that is very seductive. So this person who wasn't on time is all of a sudden sending you flowers or sending you a lot of text messages or doing and saying exactly the things you want because it just turned into a game for them. It's not about them. Oh, I heard this person. I want to be on time. It's more of, Ooh, I'm not going to lose at this game. And they'll suck them back in and they'll go back to not being Oh my God, so you just opened another can of worms. So then how do you identify that instead of going, oh, well, they heard me and now they're making an effort? Because that's what I would, I think, maybe even revert to initially. It's like, oh, I've, I've voiced my concern. I've said that, you know, they're, they're not um, on mm. time and it's, okay, tell me. No, Lisa, I'm pushing back because yep. you communicated with them three times and said, please be on time. And they did not listen to you. Only when you said, you know what? This isn't really working. Time oh, really matters okay. to me. It's you leaving. That that wasn't you talking got that led to the it. change in behavior. It was you leaving. And for narcissistic people, they're actually very sensitive to abandonment. Mm. And what happens is that sets in a very unhealthy cycle. Because people say, oh, if I'm not getting what I want from this person, I'm just going to threaten to leave. Well, that's an insanely toxic relationship mm. cycle. You're leaving because they're not listening. And now you threaten to leave, and now they're on time. It's not because they're listening to you. It's because they don't want to lose. And, oh my God, the, so yeah. strong. and then it becomes a vicious cycle, right? Because then you've noticed that by threatening to leave, they then give you attention and love, but it's not for the reasons you're hoping it's for. Oh, my God, that's such a freaking massive breakthrough. Okay, wow. Like, you've just hit me. I just need, like, a second to regroup. Um, there's another thing that you said. I'm so loving this, by the way. There's another thing that you said, which is, um, that wasn't my intention. And the funny thing is, that's the strategy I now have been using for the last few months when I'm apologizing to someone. I'm literally saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. That wasn't my intention. Because even I need them to know that I didn't want to upset them or hurt them. But then I heard you say, if someone says it wasn't my intention, then that is a big red flag. Okay, it's a red flag when they're not showing any care and concern for your feeling. So if somebody gets very upset, you've done something, okay, whatever it may be, and they are upset, and you say, I, I for no matter what, you always want to start with empathy, always open with empathy. That's a rule people should hold and say, I hear you, you're, I can hear you're very upset, and I'm so sorry, and, and even worse, I can see that I was, I, I'm, responsible you know it was our interaction that's you know that's contributing to this you know please tell me how you're feeling 
always give that person a chance to share. Because what we do is we're so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with other people's discomfort with us, we tend to cut that conversation off because we don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. But they need to say it. And if they feel safe and we're holding space for them, they'll share it and say, I felt hurt. I felt unheard. I felt devalued. And you'll say, I am so sorry. I want to tell you it wasn't my intention. However, that doesn't matter because you're hurt. You see the difference Mm -hmm. between then somebody who just opens up with the person says, you hurt my feelings, la, 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 la. And then a person says, well, that wasn't my intention. Uh, you see what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's like it's sort of these words get their power in terms of placement and whether or not the person's building empathy in there. Mm-hmm. So if you're really because at that point, after you've heard someone and held a safe space for them and empathize with them and really took it in as hard as it was to do that, they have now they've soothed a bit. They recognize you are safe. Mm -hmm. So when you say that wasn't my intention after all of that, they'll say, no, 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 I get that it wasn't your intention. I understand that. And they feel safe enough to share an emotion. That means that relationship can now go to the next level of intimacy because it's safe. Mm -hmm. But if you shared something with me, you say, hey, Dr. Romney, I'm, you know, I'm hurt because da, 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 da. And I openly, and I said, well, that wasn't my intention. I've just shut you down. Mm. I've not opened the door for you to share. And that's what narcissistic people do. They shut the lines of communication through manipulations. That wasn't my intention through gaslighting. There's nowhere to go at that point. So the relationship lacks intimacy because there's no sharing. Oh, wow. So how on earth do you have that discussion with somebody? So let's say you do say that and they shut you down. Um, As the person on the other side that's talking to a narcissist, how would you continue a conversation? You don't. <laughs> you don't. I mean, see, that's the thing. There, there's no workaround on this one because now they've shut you down. They're basically saying your emotional world is of no importance to me. You're of no importance to me. Where do you go? And I think the whole the, the thing that I'll never get behind is people saying, no, 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 there has to be a way forward. No, 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 there's not. Because at this point, you're disrespecting yourself staying in this conversation. And it is just going to get more abusive. So there is no way forward. Yeah. Wow. I love how simple that answer was. That was great. And so I want to talk about when you first start meeting someone, because you said it's easier to kind of identify. um, And I don't know if you actually use these words, but it's a little simpler to identify. Maybe you're not as close as you can, um, let's say, pull away from them. If you're dating, you notice certain characteristics. But I heard you talk about charisma. Now, charisma to me is intoxicating when someone's around you and they're charismatic like i i love being around them but i heard a (laughs) you're shaking your head i want to read this quote that you said that i love charisma is like heavy perfume or cologne that someone wears when they don't take a shower it's probably covering covering up something else talk to me about that because i like to kind of think i'm charismatic but i don't like to think of myself as being you know um a narcissist or you know very heavily perfumed so here i mean here's the thing with charisma it is a um, charisma. Think of it. Think of the letter U upside down. Okay. When a person has no charisma, let's face it, there's no interest. There's right. a. It's sort of like it's a lot of work. I get that. Then there's that mid-level charisma, right? It is a somebody who is a, a good listener, a good talker, but they're not sucking all the oxygen out of the room. You know, somebody who is at the far end of that U, the other side of the curve, when it's too much charisma. It feels like you're at a performance and it's exhausting. 
But I will say, especially for people who survived narcissistic relationships, I'll say to them, you know what? You don't get to play in the deep end of the charisma pool. Like we're not Mm going to swim on that side of the pool (laughs) because those folks more often than not are a problem. And I wonder is all that big charisma, why the need for the attention? Why do they need all eyes on them? Why are they, are they letting other people talk? Because there's people who can be incredibly charismatic, but also very engaging. But one of the challenges with charismatic people is they have a, an ability. They, they don't look at people. They look through people. So even though they're looking, talking, you're, they're listening to you and they're looking at you and they're talking to you, it really does seem that they're literally looking right through you to see if someone more interesting is coming mm. through the door. That's a real signature piece of charisma. There's what's the next better thing than the person who's in front of me. And so, you know, charisma to me, I always say charisma is like an amusement park. Nobody's going to an amusement park every day, but it sure is fun <laughs> on the day it happens. So I always say, keep the charismatic people around for about two weeks, have some fun, have a fling. But this is probably not a long game because the charismatic people, that is a very almost a cultivated pattern that's designed to draw attention. And in the rarest of cases, charisma accompanies the empathy, kindness, respect. Charisma is also um, conflated with something we call extroversion. Extroverts are people who like being with other people. They draw their energy from other people. They like crowds. They like gathering. That's in contrast to the blessed introverts. And the introverts do not get their energy from other people. They're they're introspective. They spend a lot of time in their head. They actually prefer their group small. They're loyal as heck to those people and absolutely lovely. But you put them in a crowd of 500 people and they're actually going to look like a deer in the headlights. They're not enjoying themselves. Not because they're anxious. It's just not what they enjoy. And I'm going to be frank with you. I'm an introvert. Yeah, me too. And I do not like crowds of people. Very introverted. Like on any given day, I would rather be home either with my child or with my partner or with a small group of friends, but not with groups of people. They and, and when I spend time with groups of people, I'm as depleted as if I've been up for 24 hours. Like when I give a big speaking, like I speak to sometimes thousands of people mm-hmm. at seminars, I'm exhausted. Even though it's on Zoom, I'm exhausted yeah. when it's done. So that, but can a person be a charismatic introvert? I think actually a charismatic introvert might be where char- charisma might be a little bit more healthy mm-hmm. because then they might be able to sort of be engaging and really sort of connect and all of that. But charisma is a tricky pattern because we always assume, Lisa, that it's, it's a good thing. And I think people have to be discerning about charisma. They have to say, is this charismatic person actually listening? Are they, are they, you know, are they participating in an equal way? Are they expecting everyone to fawn over them? Like charisma is like wine. You got to know what you're drinking. <laughs> I love that. Do you think then people who are more insecure are drawn more to charisma? I think everybody is vulnerable to charisma because we've been taught it's a good thing. Mm. What we've never been is that maybe it's not very how often does somebody said hey you're dating look for the least charismatic person or look for somebody who doesn't have much charisma that's not what anyone is telling anyone when they're dating when you think about online dating platforms people who are a little more charismatic and look more like that they tend to get more of the hits right so i think that we have so overvalued this quality societally that i don't necessarily think it's that insecure people are drawn to them i think everybody is drawn to them. And I will tell you, I'm a rare person. When I meet a charismatic person, I actually have no interest. I walk away. I find them depleting, exhausting, troublesome. Um, I really will look for that person who seems much more centered, less attention seeking, and I'm always a winner. You know, it's always a better conversation. Hmm. God, that's so powerful. I actually heard you say though, that um, people, uh, narcissists can't change. 
So unhealthy or what we call pathological personality patterns are by definition rigid. Okay. So these are, and the reason these patterns are so rigid is because people with these rigid personality patterns like narcissism are not introspective. They don't look inwards. People who are narcissistic because they're so unaware of what the driver is, this deep unprocessed insecurity and they're dysregulated. They're very impulsive. So what many narcissistic people will say is you'll sometimes get, and this is what confuses people in these relationships. They know what's right and they know what's wrong. So they'll throw one of their tantrums and they'll be very cruel and mean and reactive. Afterwards, they'll know they did the wrong thing. But that reactivity reduced their tension, right? It, it worked for them. The narcissist is like, oh, I feel relieved that I got out. But everyone else has been devastated by their tantrum. They're like, okay, I feel better now. I let it out. I'm sorry now. And how many times are you going to have someone blow up on you and then say, I'm sorry? And the resistance to change is because the reactivity of the narcissist is almost like a reflex. They basically want a world where they're like, can't you just let me have my tantrums and then I can say sorry afterwards? <sighs> and you have to say, that's not how the world works. These people are hurt. And everyone's not designed to be your pacifier. You're not, I mean, nobody gets mad at a six-month-old baby for crying because it's a baby. But in essence, a narcissist wants to be treated like a six-month-old, have their tantrums and still have people snuggle them afterwards, right? And that's not how life works. So that's what I mean by they don't change. Some people who are narcissistic will look up and say, okay, I get it. This pattern is toxic. I am not behaving well. Mm. I am not being a nice person. I've lost the love of my life. I've become isolated from my family. I've lost my job. They know something's up. And then they might come into therapy. And the therapist, like me, would say, okay, what we need you to be is very mindful. You need to be aware of how you, you're impacting other people. You need to breathe and be present with them. And they'll be like, what? <laughs> I have to care? I have to care about their feelings? Ugh, this is exhausting. And they're actually kind of put off by what's being asked of them but they know they need to do. It's almost like, I hate to say it, it's almost like trying to lose weight. Someone's like, oh, in order to lose weight, you can't eat sweets and you can't eat hamburgers and you can't eat french fries and you have to eat this. And they're like, that's what it's going to take? And you're like, yeah, you can't keep eating this way. And they'll say, I don't know about this. And so they stay heavy or they stay at an unhealthy weight. Okay. Same thing with a the narcissist. They're like, if this is what it's going to take, mm -hmm. a lot of them say, I don't think I can do this. So the narcissist does not recognize the need for change until stuff falls apart for them. Okay, they lose their partner, their kids aren't talking to them, they lose their job, they publicly are shamed for something, they don't, until that point, they're going along their lives just sort of making a mess of everything. Mm. And so then they get called out and there's real consequences. Like sometimes they get called out and there's no consequences, so they don't care. Mm. Consequences might be going to jail, consequences might be a divorce, consequences may be losing their money, consequences may be a whole number of things. And so those consequences feel real to them, especially if they're public consequences. I'm no longer married or I no longer have my partner or I no longer have my money. And then some of they do have to start taking the deep dive saying nobody's around anymore. Like I'm losing everyone. And then for, and even then those many narcissists are much more likely to blame other people for their failures and problems than take responsibility. So they're still blaming. This is my wife's fault. This is the world's fault. This is this person's fault. This is this, this is this. At some point that they're going to say they blamed everyone, nothing's going their way. And a small percentage of people with this pattern will say, okay, maybe I am responsible for this. And I don't like what my life looks like right now. You tell them what it means to take responsibility 
And that's actually something that feels incredibly uncomfortable for them. But all change to a healthier place from an unhealthy place is uncomfortable. Hmm. Whether it's a person dealing with anxiety, whether it's a person dealing with depression, whether it's a person dealing with panic attacks, they have to go to therapy. They have to tolerate the discomfort. They have to talk about the uncomfortable stuff to get to a healthy place. It's no more different than with narcissism. The challenge is, is that the narcissist is very, very resistant to doing introspective, insightful work. Yeah, and what you just said, so it's basically, it's what's happening to them. So they've lost the people so that they're feeling empty. So they think, okay, maybe I need to do something about it versus, oh my God, I can't believe I just hurt the love of my life. Correct. Got Correct. it. That's very powerful. Very powerful. Um, and I've heard you somewhat um, evolve your data on um, the, the stats between um, how many men and women are narcissists. Obviously, it's a very hard thing to um, identify on like the data, but I know that you were initially saying it was 80-20 and then you said over time you're starting um, to, to realize that now it's actually becoming like 70-30, potentially 60-40. What do you think that is? Is that just us understanding it more? and it displays differently in a man or woman? Or are you seeing that more women are becoming narcissists? I think men are more socialized for narcissistic traits. We devalue emotion in men. They are mocked and made ah. fun of if they're vulnerable. Like So the way boys are raised, the way men are raised, they're always going to be more vulnerable. Aggression has a very different... Like if a man dominates that's considered more normative it's not normative for women so all of these qualities like you know we devalue empathy in men um we the men have more privilege so they're going to be more entitled all of that means that just from a socialization perspective you're always going to have more male narcissists there's no two ways about it however interestingly as women do get in some in some places of their lives some a little more power some women do have privilege those women are going to be more vulnerable to being narcissistic it's just that for men they tend to have more of the overt symptoms of narcissism the the big grandiosity the big arrogance the dominance the control those are sort of very male kinds of patterns women may have more victimized passive aggressive patterns so they may not be as in your face, but they're still narcissistic. And so it, it's not because we don't, it's not a word we use with women as much, but oh, they're definitely out there. And I think that sadly, as people get more power in a society, there's a greater vulnerability of it. But there's also, it's also a very developmental pattern too. Narcissism doesn't spring up when somebody's 30. It's something that was developed mm. through childhood. So girls and um, females, children are going to be as affected by this as, as male children. And so we're going to see that those impacts of parenting are there, but it could very well be that as, as, as girls go through, um, go through their childhood, they have more opportunities to develop the emotional muscles because it's more part of their play. Mm. You know, whereas for boys, if, if they're crying, they're made, they're a sissy, you're a loser. Boys don't cry. When a girl cries, it's actually permitted. And so we actually create, we have to create more permission for men to be emotional. That would actually be a big part early, young and early. Parents should not chastise a son for crying. We should create spaces for boys to cry. That's a big socialization piece that's linked to, to sex and gender that we really have to pay attention to. And we're not good at that. So all of that's also playing a role in too. Wow, that's so powerful. So thinking about a young boy being grandiose or over the top is almost mm -hmm. rewarded for it. And if a mm -hmm. girl is, she's told to not do it. So over Correct. time, as we become adults, um, yeah. we're, the narcissist male is just almost forgiven, but the female has yeah. somewhat um, 
you even said passive aggressive. So it's very different behavior, right? Than being overtly um, overpowering, overbearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very, so a woman would not have been, those, those traits would not have been shaped and socialized right. in her in the same way. And so, um, you know, and, and listen, there's a whole new world of conversations that's going to come up with, with people who are trans, right? Who were, who, who grew up socialized to a, to a set of gender roles and they themselves were struggling with that. And they're saying, no, 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 you know, that, that like, please allow me to be that the gender that's right for me. So we're not, we're just beginning to explore these issues and trans people and queer people. So, you know, it's, I think we've always viewed this through a very heteronormative kind of a lens. Mm. So, but when we think of it in that traditional lens of boys and girls, men and women, is that definitely that when a woman, somebody's viewed as a woman is speaking more um, assertively, clearly and in a commanding manner much more likely to be pathologized for that, be called aggressive, <laughs> to be called unattractive. And then if a man is speaking in that way, he's viewed as a leader. He, they'll use the word assertive there. They'll view him as authoritative. But remember, these are developmental traits that come out of insecurity, that sometimes come out of trauma. Boys, girls are both differentially affected by this. It's just how we value emotion and things like that in the face of it. That might mean that more boys go in that direction than girls. Wow, that is um, scary and yet very enlightening to kind of know how and what we're doing when we talk to children um, and the nuances of that and how that can then manifest itself into, you know, um, how they show up as their adults. So um, where I've got, so, I literally could talk to you for hours. I've got so much to talk to you about, but maybe I just got to have you back on the show. Um, yes, I where, hope so. Where can people find you? Where can people find all the incredible work you're doing and your books and all of that good stuff? So you can go to my website, which is drromany.com. And, you know, on my website, everything's there. The link to my YouTube channel and going to my Dr. Romany YouTube channel is a great way to just sort of get all this content on pretty much there's hundreds there now to get content on all sorts of things related to narcissism. Uh, my, you know, you can get my, you can look at my books on the website and then you can go to buy them in a local bookstore or you know, on, on an online bookseller. And so all of those, you know, those give a deeper dive, obviously, and everything you want to know, I do lots of regular seminars, I have one even coming up, I have them every month. And so you can go to my website, and you can get information on those. And those give a much, much deeper dive and an opportunity for something more interactive. So there's lots of different ways. Thank you, guys. Guys, you've got to check out her stuff. I honestly went on like this whole rabbit hole of her content, her videos, her Instagram. So you go check it out. It's so freaking powerful. And if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And guys, if this episode did bring you value, please, please do share, subscribe, like, comment. Let me know what powerful thing that she said that really hit you in today's episode. And until next time, guys, as always, be the hero of your own life. Peace out.